Liz Eshi, and you're listening to AI for That, hosted by myself and Dimitri Shapiro. Today with us, we have Joe Sheppy, CEO and founder of Solston. On the website, Solston is described as the superhuman solution for human-centric experiences, which draws on a deep understanding of human psychology and is amplified by AI. So, Joe, you're going to have to give us a two-minute rundown of of what that means and and how it's put into practice. Sure. So, what what Solston really is is we can think of it as like a human insight engine. Most of the internet today is behavioral. You know, when we look at science, 1960s is really when we started developing cognitive psychology. It's not that people denied that cognitive psychology existed before that. It was just that we could start measuring it. And we're here and it's 2023 and we're still in the world of a behavioral internet. We're not in a cognitive behavioral internet. So what Solston really does is we we understand the psychological, the cognitive landscape behind audiences. We do this anonymously and we empower companies, mostly in the gaming space right now, but we're starting to grow outside of that to holistically understand their audience. So you can design experience to them based on who they are, not just based on their demographics or what they clicked on or what they did. Maybe to give like a a brief example, like imagine you're using Google Maps and there's a data scientist on the back end that sees there's two data points and both of them they predicted are going to buy the same thing at the same store on the same day. And both of those data points walk away, do completely different things. You know, we might say that, well, humans are just predictably irrational. That's kind of the behavioral economics version of it. The problem with behavioral economics is that humans are actually very rational within their psychological means. So maybe Solston knew that user one um, is very forgetful. They have low levels of conscientiousness. They're a pretty forgetful person. So they forgot their wallet and that's why they not, make, you know, they didn't make the purchase decision. User two might have really high levels of social anxiety. And walking away from a store that's packed full of people is a very rational thing to do if you have social anxiety. So for user one, maybe there's a reminder, hey, did you remember your wallet? Or for user two, there's, hey, there's another store, same store, two blocks up, not crowded today. So if we think of like how we create experiences today based on what people did, they're very limiting. So that's where Solston comes in, helps you understand your audience, not just based on what people did or how old they are, which is very limiting in terms of like how we design experiences, but based on who they are and what they need. How, how, how does one index sort of these states of, of, of each individual? Like how are these individuals sort of articulating their cognitive states? Yeah. If they're they're socially anxious or how are you acquiring that? Yeah. So, you know, when we, when we think of a trait, a trait is something like your, your nose, you, you wake up the next day, you don't get to wish to have a different nose. You can thank your, your parents or your grandparents or, you know, whoever. And we also have neurological traits. We have cognitive traits. We have personality traits. And for every one of those, there's different levels of, of what we call reliability. So things, for example, like extroversion, that's a personality trait. It tends to go down over time as we get older but it's pretty stable throughout one's one's life. So you can't like wake up tomorrow and go, you know what? I used to be an extrovert. I got tons of energy around anybody. And that's what a lot of people don't always understand about extroversion is it actually, you know, it's a measure of how much energy we get around people. Like I have friends or know people that they could be in prisons around people they don't like and they're getting energy around people. Or if you're an introvert, you know, you're like, 
I, I just don't get energy around people. I need my time. I need to kind of rejuvenate, you know, separate story there. Like Freud's daughter, you know, it used to be beneficial to be an introvert because it meant, Hey, I don't need other people to get energy. I can kind of generate that myself. So there's a history there. That's kind of interesting from a psychological perspective, but these traits, these things that are more stable over time, those are kind of the things that we're measuring. So if you look at extroversion as an example, and let's say we we measure that in a person, I'll get to how, how we do that. We're starting to now understand something that is enduring, like your demographics are not enduring. Your, your age is going to change. You can change your location. There's a lot of things about your demographics that are not stable. But if you look at certain traits, and some traits for some individuals are more stable than for others, and it kind of depends on your overall personality. So what, what Solston does is I was a, a UX director for McCann Erickson back in like kind of the mid 2000s. And I was doing big projects with like Verizon and Intel and Cisco. And I'm like, I'm designing these things that are literally impacting hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in the case of like some of these companies. And I'm like, I literally don't understand A, who they are and what they need. Okay, design this for a 25-year-old female. What does that mean? She's interested in XYZ. I still don't know what that means. So I really understood that design-wise, we need to get a better view of who these people are. So I started exploring, you know, looking at NLP, looking at, can we, can we look at language models? Can we predict personality from what people say, all that kind of stuff? The reality is it's incredibly limiting. Most of what you say is not very indicative of, of who you are. People modulate their speech based on cultural norms, based on interpersonal relationships, based on the Hawthorne effect. You know, if we're talking to a usability specialist and we know we're being observed, you can see changes in speech, for example, where at the time I was actually a clinical psychotherapist too, and I was working under one of the top neuropsychologists in the United States. So a lot of what we were doing was neuropsych evals for traumatic brain injuries, you know, a lot of like drug abuse, drug addiction, things like that. These things take seven hours to complete. They're, they're really robust, but they take a super long time and looked at, okay, A, this is, and this comes from our world of clinical neuropsych. Humans in general are pretty poor observers of our own cognition. So it's like, it's hard for our brain to observe our brain. B, we're also poor observers of each other's cognition. Like Elizabeth and Dimitri, I just don't know. I can't, I couldn't write down any aspects of that. I, I just met you both, but it's pretty challenging. And then C, you know, if we look at neuroassessment and, and what's there, there's kind of a, a limitation to self-report, so to speak as well. Like we can do really pretty good job with building these questionnaires, like in clinical psychology, you have things like the MMPI, for example, that can measure different personality disorders, things like that. But they do have upward limits. Like a lot of these, their reliability issues, you know, maybe our 80% is something that perform an item, a question that performs like pretty, pretty well. So basically kind of exploring all these different aspects of how do we really understand who we're creating things for? And how do we really understand if they're actually impacting people in a positive or negative way? Like, I don't think the person that designed the like button for Facebook was like, oh man, I'm going to just screw a bunch of people over in like eight years from now. They probably <laughs> said, hey, this is a really good design mechanism and it's working well. And let's see what happens. You know, and the, the studies from the University of Michigan on Facebook use and depression, like that came out much later. And so how do we enable creators, designers, builders to really understand their audience? So what Solston does is we deploy an adaptive psychometric assessment in games. Think of it as like the ACT or SAT. As you're taking the questionnaire, the questionnaire is learning about you. It's deploying more and more valid items, items being questions, to measure about 
250 different personality traits. So with that being said, we come out with this sort of anonymous person. We never know who the person is in real life. So there's a user ID. There's basically the psychological data on that group. And for that person, that's really our like biological sample. It's not how we scale that across a population. Part of my past is I was a, an adventure-based psychotherapist. So while I was doing neuroassessment, that's how I was treating patients. And there's a saying that I love, which is like, show me how you play and I'll tell you who you are. And when people play, um, their histrionics or their masks start to go away and you get to see pretty authentic behavior that you don't normally see in other places. And that's part of what you do in adventure um, psychology is you get to put people in kind of interesting situations where they forget you're completely there. You're like, oh, this is what what's going on when you guys are at home and you know fighting as a couple or, or things like that. So I'm happy to give examples there. But what we're doing then is taking all this play behavior from video games and we're predicting, we put it in taxonomy, and then we predict based on these behaviors, oh, that person rebuilt their base really quick. Is that actual signal for resilience or is it signal for their level of competitiveness? And how good is that signal? And so in the same way, Google basically indexed the internet and made it searchable. What we're doing is indexing all this rich behavior in gaming and making it cognitively understandable to a point where one of our goals as a company is, you know, in three to five years from now, could you go to the doctor and play Angry Birds? for five minutes rather than taking seven hours of a neuropsych assessment. That sounds a little bit more fun to me. I, I agree. I think that sounds more, <laughs> more fun than <laughs> <the psych. Yeah>. assessment. <laughs> so, okay. So these are questions that show up during gameplay or prior to gameplay as some kind of a do this and your gameplay will be better. Like how, how are they presented to the consumer? Yeah. So it's, it's a pop-up in the game. And it's, you know, a lot of mobile games, for example, consumers are very interested, are very used to taking lots of questionnaires. And this is this is also part of the, the story here. When I was at McCann and we would send these kind of things to like Intel customers, you don't get good conversion rates. Like, you know, in, your average Intel buyer is not like, oh yeah, I want my Intel experience to be that much better. Think of like the pop-ups that they have on YouTube where it's like, answer these four questions. You're like, nope. But I can tell you this, if you're a 40-year-old man playing Star Trek and you love Star Trek and someone says, hey, we want to improve your experience as a player. We have a 10-minute questionnaire. If you're open to taking it, you know, click on this link. Mm -hmm. So what? that's how we get the initial. That's basically for our construct validity, our reliability levels. That's kind of our baseline. But what we typically see is about 10% of the daily active users in the game will take this within the first day. So... I mean, we're working with some games that have hundreds of millions of people playing them. So you can work out the math from that. But from that, Solston's basically at a point where we have the largest psychological database, known psychological database anyway, in the world. So if you're an alien and want to know, like, what are humans like? What are some personality traits that seem to be consistent across our species? Like, we could probably hook, hook them up and let them know. So that's and, how that's how we do the questionnaire. And, and the dimensions of this are you said 250 questions or does everybody get the same 250 questions or like how would you describe and, and what kind of questions are they are they sort of all structured like multiple choice or are they open answer yeah so they're very similar so you know if you've ever maybe if somebody's on a, a non-clinical non let's say statistically accurate level like it's it's somewhat interesting but things like the myers-briggs for example so they're, they're on seven point Likert scales. You know, you're basically answering 
from time to time, you know, I, I or over-organize things, or I don't know what the item is necessarily, <laughs> but what our questionnaire is, it's, it's basically an adaptive assessment. So if you think of like when you took the SAT and it goes, Ooh, like we're answering these questions adaptively and we're learning about you. Okay. You already know physics really well. We're going to go to math or we're going to ask, ask you these math questions because of how you answer these. So what it actually pulls from, and this is what I think it's pretty cool. We're, we're at the frontier of assessment. So already Solston assessments are, have better reliability and better validity than any assessment I used when I was doing assessment as a clinician. So, you know, medically it takes like about 10 years from a point of innovation to something getting implemented and assessment. If we talk about machine learning and AI, it's one of the oldest examples of quote unquote AI. We've been doing machine learning with assessments since Dr. David Weiss, who's at the University of Minnesota. He's the godfather of adaptive testing. It's one of the first examples of machine learning being, being used. So what we have is this massive item bank. So tons of different questions, but the one thing these questions all have in common is they have very high levels of reliability and validity. Meaning if we ask the question to you to measure, let's say your level of resilience, and we ask the question, that same question to you again in a year from now, there's above an 80% chance they're going to answer exactly the same. So these questions are very good at performing trait measurement. So very specific to, to traits. And those 250 traits plus that we're measuring is actually ever increasing. So we kind of think of it as like a, a cocktail mix. Like maybe you have some base ingredients, you have, you have a whiskey, you have gin, you have this, and then you start to mix those together and you can start to understand, hey, you know what, extroversion plus openness. And then we're just using like the, the ocean kind of in the clinical world, it's called the, the NEO model of personality, which is a well-studied model of personality. And hey, some of these base ingredients, actually from those two, we might be able to measure another trait. So some of them are not directly me measured, they're predictably inferred. Um, and that's where the, the engine gets smarter and smarter and smarter. But yeah, it's a number of questions and it's learning about you as you're taking the assessment. So what it's going to deploy to you is the next best question that is the most accurate for you and reliable for you that measures the next best trait to basically construct that that profile for you. Mm -hmm. And and then the, does the consumer sounds like the consumer benefits by their gameplay becoming more nuanced and personalized. But does the consumer sort of have other benefits with this? Meaning, can they sort of get an analysis and, and insights into themselves on from these questions? Yeah. So when you finish the assessment, because everything's anonymous, we give you a unique ID. So here's your ID. Take that ID. You can plug it into our system. You can see, you know, your motivations, a lot of the, the data that we're collecting there. So you get a lot of insight there. There's actually some pretty interesting forms where like players have come back and said, like, finally, our developers are going to be listening to us. Or like, I actually learned a lot of really cool stuff about myself through this. So that's one value to the consumer too, is basically being able to control their personalization over time. So one of the things Solston believes is that humans always seek deeper and deeper levels of interactiveness and, and immersiveness. And gaming is just literally at the very beginning of, of where we're going to go in the future of, of digital life, where I think what we think of as games today, play is like a core part of what it means to be human. Like all apes learn through play. That's that's what we do. We we believe as a company that, you know, whether you're Chipotle or whoever, 
the amount of immersiveness within their experiences will increase, 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 and digital experiences will start to be more like like play or more like games. And so as a part of that, getting that ID in the future, what we're building out is you'd be able to then say, you know, I don't want Chipotle to, to personalize to me, but I do want, I don't know, Activision or only these games at Activision. I'm really good with that, but not these games. So how are we enabling consumers to be in control of a, their online reality? So it's not your identity. Your personality is, is a little bit different. So it's sensitive data, but not identifiable data, but how do we enable consumers to be in control of their digital experience and and choose you know what companies are be able to personalize for them or not so that's one benefit and then the the other like biggest tangible benefit that happens over and over and over again with every company we work with like we work with ea and epic and supercell and singa and all these kind of companies like most of the big game developers work with us in some sort of sort of context what i think is an important there is those people creating experiences if if you go into a game studio from three years ago and they're like, you know what? We're going to make this really awesome game for 45-year-old females. Like that's literally the discussion. That's literally, and it's a lot of times like, you know, 30 guys on the team. And so this is how we end up with the okay. digital reality that we have today. And now when the discussion becomes, hey, we're going to make this game for you know, this, this group that's like really off the charts on altruism and their biggest values are, are family and caring about other people. And, you know, here's some of the other stuff we know about them. All of a sudden the experience, what shifts is it becomes so much more relevant for the user. And some of the stuff we measure, we don't just measure um, trait data. We measure mental health data as well. Things like depression, anxiety, stuff like that. So we have this thing called a, a user-centered score or a player-centered score. And what it's actually measuring is how likely is that person to contribute value for that game over a long period of time, meaning lifetime value, revenue. And additionally, how likely is that game going to give value to that person over time? Is it going to lower their levels of depression? Is it going to lower anxiety? Is it going to increase restfulness of, of sleep. We look at biopsychosocial factors there and the higher that score is, and this is, I, I say, this is like the dirty secret we know that's not dirty is the better or healthier an experience is for your customer, for your human, the longer you're going to extract lifetime value from them. I love to ski. It's one of my passions. By the time I'm 95, I will give more money to the ski industry probably than any other industry. It gives me biological health, social health, psychological health. There's some people that the ski industry is probably not a good idea for, you know, people that might have, you know, there's a, there's a threshold of risk-taking where that, that industry can tip over into biological health issues. So, <laughs> you know, us understanding these things, we were able to measure those. So what it empowers companies to do is build really, really good. And what we say, healthier experiences for users while keeping the person anonymous, while allowing the customer, like we work with Eve online, it's a 20 year old MMO game they were sitting there going to us, Hey, like, how do we get more people through our first time experience? We've been doing this for 20 years. We've tried everything with the ML, with behavioral optimizations, with different offers. Like, what do we do? We saw that there's a bunch of people really high on altruism that weren't making it through that first time user experience. And on our back end through our API, we're just like, allow all those IDs that are high on altruism the first day to get matched with experiences that are altruistic, like helping a guild member, helping a friend, helping someone else, 
20% more people were making it through their first time experience after that. So, you know, the, the business is able to greatly benefit and then the consumer or the player in this case is able to get experiences that are more in line with who they are. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Have you, have you <clears throat> thought about or, or experimented with sort of using this data to not in gaming, but sort of in, as an interface to let's say large language models to AI? Yeah, so we're there's some stuff that I can't totally talk about on the podcast yet. That's on the R and D side of our company, but I can say there's we have about two or three projects that are under works there. You know, if if we look at like, you know, it's it's interesting when we think of the world of of AI today, where a lot of people talk about things in terms of like generative AI and these like large and you know like language models and. It's this is my opinion. So maybe some of the people on this show will get mad at me. But in well, my opinion, so. <laughs> maybe, you know, in my opinion, AI, you know, what we have today anyway, it, it is not generative. It's synthesizing. It's synthesizing lots of information. It's not necessarily creating knowledge. It's taking information that's out there and then building upon that. And for us, I I talked to some other person and he's like, oh, you guys are basically a discriminant AI as you exist today. And this generative versus discrimination, I think it's it's an interesting path to go out on. It's like, okay, sure. In some ways there's there's generative stuff that we're learning. In some ways, you know, quote unquote, in some days there's discriminant things. We're just, we're discriminating traits as a result of this. And then discriminating what experiences should be adapted based on that. Either way you look at it, one of the things that I think is interesting is all of these learning models. And I think this is given what, you know, some of the stuff, Dimitri, that you work on, I think this is where there's some really interesting crossover between what we do. One of the things that Solston puts our, our foot down with is you'll see these kind of big reports or sometimes they're investor reports talking about the state of AI. And then they'll show all these products that whether it's these are generating creative things, these are generating this, these are generating that. I have not seen one single game company be able to take something like that and go, we, this is perfect. We can actually put this in front of users and it's never going to happen in that context until it gets hooked up with the person on the other end. So even as it is today, you can take like the best artist in the world who's been working with that population or that specific game. And we had this with a, a game we had at, at Big Fish called Dungeon Boss. Our, our best selling character was this guy, Igarok. And we couldn't figure it out. Is it because he's a snow guy? Is it because he's an ogre? Is it because he's big? It's because he's, and we kept trying different things around that and we could never beat him. We can never, and it was the same artist and there's a lot of specificity to it. What was missing for us at, at Big Fish was not the ability to generate ideas or generate creative. It was the ability to actually understand the consumer on the other end. And what were the resonance factors between those two? So that's where, you know, back to the original question, that's part of what we're really interested in working in. Like we have a really unique set of data. We have this, this ability to extract and understand psychological traits at a level that we know is, is wildly accurate, especially compared to clinical tools, like the ones I used to have, have access to. Mm. So how can we start to enable these, these synthesizers, and that's the part that, you know, these, these things like mid-journey that synthesize all this information and create output. How can we allow these synthesizers then on the other end to go, well, what's the AI of resonance? So I think that's where that middle section is what Solston as a company and, and healthful resonance specifically. How do we take the human over here 
the the nouns, the people, places, and things over here? And then how do we allow those to resonate between each other? And in that process, how do we empower the next level of designers, creators, builders to feel like, you know, they're they're just like magicians. They're able to understand audiences and build things at such a level of craftsmanship that it's like, I was literally able to come up with the perfect gift for you or this perfect thing for you. That's one of the things that we're, we're working to enable. So given that, you know, I think we're on the legal side, we've done a lot of work with, okay, what does that mean from a chat GPT perspective or these kind of, you know, these big language learning, you know, in terms of plugging into them, we have to make sure that everything that we have is safe and that it's in our, cause that's, I think one of the, the futures of, of companies that will succeed in the ML space is they'll be sitting on really unique sets of data that can be trained on. So ChatGPT could obviously train off of what's on the internet. But if I look at my best doctors that I've had in, in the history of my life, I can think of a, a great example from a colleague when I used to work in Switzerland. She had seen all of the specialists in the world for an eye problem that she was having. My grandpa was an eye doctor until he was like 90 years old. And she said, I can't, I can't solve this thing. I, I just can't. I said, here, let me check with my grandpa. Sent it over to grandpa, sent her something back. She was Polish. She, she ended up, there's a big bottle of uh, Polish vodka on my desk the next day. And she's like, I've been trying to solve this for 30 years. Well, that, that wisdom that my grandpa was able to pass on that he had learned that helped her solve her problem wasn't on the internet. That's a unique data set. And I think a lot of companies have these unique sort of things that we could be training off of. And I think that when you start to have something like that as a business, and then as you said, Dimitri, well, then how do we play well together with different learning systems? I think that's when things start to become really interesting. And that's where just reading about what you guys do, I'm like, wow, there's some really cool potential crossover between what we're doing at Solston and, and what you guys are doing. And I think from an effort perspective, that's Solston's mission. My mission was always, how do we, how do we increase awareness? Because I saw a lot of my patients coming in and like, what was the gap between you being in this chair and not being in this chair? And what's interesting is most of the people that end up in therapy, someone allowed them to become aware that they can be in charge of their destiny in some way, shape, or form. So actually most of the people that need treatment or need to be in therapy are not in therapy because they lack the awareness to be in therapy. So sometimes I'd say like, you know, your dad or your parents or these people, like basically, you know, you're the brave one. You're the one who's here because the people, if everybody who actually needed it was here, then you wouldn't need to be here. So there's a certain level of awareness to like go into that perspective as a, from a first place. And then today, psychological assessment is one of the best tools we have to increase our self-awareness. And so it's like, okay, I become that much more aware of myself. And then therefore I can be much more of a force and effect on my life than, you know, basically kind of getting knocked around by, by the world. So that's one of Solston's missions. And if I could do this more by seeing patients every day, we wouldn't be doing this as a, as a company. So that's kind of where we're saying, well, we can't improve it if we can't measure it like very Lord Kelvin but we want to be able to measure like, hey, are we improving things like mindfulness, things like awareness, et cetera? And are these different systems when we play together and work together, are we moving towards a better version of humanity or are we moving towards a dystopic version of humanity? And one of our goals is like, I forget who said it, but they're like, whoever created American cities must hate people, you know, because they're they're really built around efficiency and and cars where People will go to like, hey, I was in this little small town in Croatia and it just felt amazing. It's like, that was a town that was built around people and 
Croatia, because it was a poor country for a while, didn't rip out streets like a lot of other countries did. And they still have little cities that are built around people. And I think that's really, really powerful. And so if we think of the future of the internet, one of our missions is how are we building that around people and not necessarily around efficiency? Mm -hmm. Efficiency is fine too. There's a lot there. So I'm Dimitri, where do you want to start? <laughs> like three to four questions, but I'll let you go first. Yeah, look, I agree that being able to understand individual humans more deeply in, in the form of data can be leveraged to make their experiences you know, more valuable, whether it's for gaming or shopping or therapy or sort of anything else. This like di digitization of the human mind uh, especially with the tools that are available to us today that can take sort of all of this messiness, you know, sort of unstructured and, and even unlabeled sort of raw data and then make sense of it is ex extremely exciting. And we've never sort of been in a world where, where we had technology that could sort of really leverage that kind of unstructured data and, and do something with it. And, and so it's super interesting about how you guys are using that to, to nuance, you know, gameplay. I, 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 again, I wonder how much that could work with actually allowing people to use, let's say, ChatGPT better. When I show up to ChatGPT, it knows nothing about me. Now, mm -hmm. recently, they've introduced a feature where I could tell it some things about me and it sort of remembers that in a in a global context. So I can say I'm a I'm a techie, you can give me technical yeah. responses rather than than sort of make making them in sort of layperson language. But but that's sort of very, you know, somewhat superficial. Obviously humans are much more complicated than that and, and we change constantly. Like I just changed and I just changed again. And if if we could capture that data set and then be able to use it to sort of to provide that as context to these new information technologies that are available to us that we could sort of potentially radically transform their output because they would all be let's assume that they know everything the more they can understand us the more they can filter everything mm -hmm. and give us exactly what we need for example i think one of our, our biggest sort of problems, struggles as humans is, you know, we, we don't know what we don't know. And, and that's where all the goodies are, is, is sort of filling in those things we don't know, like serendipity surprise. That's what, you know, turns us on when, when we get that. And, and so I, I think there's this opportunity to index the human mind, like you guys are doing and some of the things we're doing, and then be able to again, use these new technologies to, to be able to make sense of that and then sort of personalize the entire world for us, meaning you could extrapolate from that and and sort of champion a, a vision of the, the internet as we know it today, the web as we know it today, could transform radically, meaning there is no need for humans to create websites for personas or you know, customer profiles, because those are, as you mentioned, sort of, you know, 
crude caricatures of humans. Humans are much more complex and diverse than that. Mm -hmm. And now these technologies can create content on the fly, right? That's what we mean by them being generative. And so each human could get a different sort of package of content created for them based upon uh, many traits, like the ones that you're collecting about them. And then perhaps even sort of an order of magnitude or more, even more sort of nuanced detail about them, where you wouldn't even be able to sort of label them as traits, but they are statistically meaningful as being, you know, differences between humans. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, what, where we started this conversation, you know, the aspect of psychological assessment back to, you know, we know that humans are poor observers of our own cognition. So if I go to ChatGP, ChatGPT and say, I'm, I'm an extrovert and I'm a techie and I'm those sort of things. Well, let's talk about extroversion. So I'm half Finnish, right? And if someone's from Olu and they're from the North of Finland and they go, yeah, I'm like a pretty extroverted person. Their perception of extroversion is based on where they grew up and where they lived. Maybe they moved to Venezuela or to Puerto Rico, countries that have higher levels of extroversion. And they're like, yeah, I'm not an extrovert, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so our our concept of an idea of self is so based off of our experiences, as well as like how honest people are with us. You know, if you look at people that have anger issues, high levels of hostility, these sort of things tend to have more of a skewed perception of self because people around them are not open to telling them how and who they are because mm-hmm. there's backlash. There's emotional expense to that. And those are often the people that the world would be best if they were a little bit more self-aware of, of some of these aspects of self. And so to your point, I think there's there's a couple of parts to that. It's one, just getting better at that so we can actually look at you know who we are and then we can learn like, hey, I yeah, I definitely knew I was like that, but I didn't know I was like that. You know, I've, everyone on our team, we have a lot of the people on the team do lots of assessment work too. And it's just always so fun to see that, that moment of, wow, like I learned a lot about, about myself. And in this way, you know, I knew this way, like I knew a little bit, but I can sort of see that, that reality and then allowing like a, you know, a a synthesis form. I think that, you know, if, if chat GPT or these generative, you know, models that they're really good at synthesizing a lot of things and then coming up with something if we look at how we communicate today, I have two people on our team. They both came to me like, we had the exact same conversation. We nodded our heads. We had the same words in the conversation. And then we went off and did two different things. <laughs> and it's like, language is so limiting in our understanding of that language. And a big part of that is, how is that language delivered to us in a way that we we actually understand? And so that's the, you know, I think where the crossover between what you were saying and it's like, it starts with who the person is and then that. And then the next step to that is, well, if there is a version of the world where we're synthesizing information and we're delivering it, what role does humanity play in that world? And what role do we want humanity to play in that world? Mm -hmm. I think there's a dark version of the matrix where we could, if we think of like the battle of attention, you know, most, most people, you know, if you say, Hey, do you think you're in control of your attention when you're on social media apps? Yeah. But if you actually measure and monitor their attention, it doesn't take long before there's a there's a passive system that's that's happening versus games where games are active media so there's a two-way exchange when you're 
when you're in a video game. It's why you can take kids who have ADHD, for example, put them in front of a math video and watch them spin around a chair for hours and then put Star Wars in front of them or something that's more interactive, like a game. And all of a sudden, like they're like really focused. The the deficit goes away. Cool. Because it's operating around different parts of the brain. And so if we look at the future of the world, it's like, well, what what's a, a role where we're elevating human potential, where we're elevating the human experience? And I think that's one where humans are active participants and the things that why I kind of go back to, you know, it's, it's synthetic AI is because it's taking all the knowledge that's out there, synthesizing it. But then at the end of the day, there's a human that if they can understand that better and more quickly can generate and can add. And it's like, there's an exponential increase of what humanity could do and achieve in the same way. Like we look back, we're like, okay, we're a 200,000 year old species. Why is it that in the last hundred years, we just got here? It's like, language. We had to create languages that probably took a really long time for us to actually create words and define things. And you look at our history as a species and well, what can this do to accelerate our potential and put us in our power zone where we can use, and I, and I, I kind of like, sometimes I like to think of Solston as like AW rather than AI. It's like artificial wisdom. How are we empowering wisdom rather than just here's intelligence, here's a thing that you can know, but then what do I do with it? And that's of all these different machine learning systems, that's the number one question we'll get from a lot of our customers. Hey, we hook these things up, they look really cool, but what do we do with them and how do we know that they work? So that's where I think we're we're very aligned in terms of that human piece. It's a it's a unsolved part that we we found all these new tricks that we can mm-hmm. generate now. But what's the human piece? That makes sense. How many questions does it take for me to be diagnosed an extrovert so it depends on completely depends on on the person so i hope that like this is probably not super too technical but the way that helps my brain wrap around it is if i think in terms of like principal component analysis where that first question that you get asked is going to be like the best question that we know from our item bank is the best starter question for you. Now that might actually be already influenced by some of your gameplay data already. But so mm-hmm. that that question might be measuring something like your motivation for fearlessness, could be measuring your value you have, could be measuring something like extroversion. So in the case that it is extroversion, we can establish that within like a, a 70 to 80% certainty within one question. But it might not even be extroversion that's getting measured in the first question. So typically for us to build out a profile at like something like 70% accuracy, we're already there within seven to 10 questions, but this is the kicker. So if we think of clinical diagnosis, if I'm saying, okay, I'm going to diagnose a person with ADHD and I'm going to prescribe the medication based off that, I'm very not comfortable about doing that with 20% error. So if we're talking about the diagnosis world and the medical world, and that's, by the way, that's where we're at today with most of the best diagnostic tools is when we come back with that assessment data, we're like, we're 80% sure. But if you think of other medical contexts, that would be wild to say like, I'm going to put you through a surgery and you know what? I'm only 80% sure that we need to remove your left leg. What? Like that. So that's meant the mental health world. And so health, I feel like it, it does feel like we're 80% sure. Like there doesn't, I don't feel like there's a lot of accuracy in that world anyway. Yeah. It's, it's, that's, that's like, you're totally right. Like it's separate conversation, but there are certain parts of that world where we can be very accurate. It depends on like 
the the thing we're diagnosing or the surgery. Like, I mean, think about a broken arm, for example. Like we can be 99.999% sure with like certain things. So we're getting better and better there. The medical acceptance criteria is is improving. But when it comes to cognitive measurement and ability to measure that, we're wildly separated. And the fact that if you look at ERs in the United States and Europe, about 50% of ER cases are caused or have a mental health component related to them. So we can go down that path pretty quickly, but you go, okay, let's go upstream from this. And part of that just becomes measuring it pretty well. But where we're at in terms of, so we, we ask about 50 to 60 questions. These are all adaptively deployed. So that's that's enough for us to get above 75 to 80% in accuracy for hundreds and hundreds of traits. So our what we do then is we're kind of like Harry Potter sorting hat. We put people into like-minded groups. So we're never allowing for a Truman show to happen where it's like, ping pong back into your own reality, people purchase and behave in, in groups. That's part of why phenomena is like Game of Thrones became very popular. It's like, if you watched it by yourself and couldn't tell anyone, it's not interesting. So, you know, that's part of why our levels work really well. But then when we tack on the game base, the play behavior, that's where we're able to actually start to improve validity and accuracy as well. And so now we're having two different sources to kind of talk to each other here. And over time, through all these different games and different sources of behavior, there's 3 billion people in the world that play games every single day right now. That's like three fourths of the digital population, basically. So, you know, using play, using play to understand people, that's, that's kind of where we're moving towards. And we kind of see it as we're at the, the forefront of the science of exploring what it means to be human of human understanding and allowing the let's let's make the digital world not like the city world where we built it around efficiency like let's not make a digital world that's built around ad clicks and ad revenue let's make a digital world that's built around what it means to be human and what's our highest potential so that's you know we'll see what we find on that journey but that's kind of where we're at today amazing yeah thanks so much for coming on the on the podcast and talking about that super interesting Likewise. important work if people want to learn more about what you're doing or participate where can they go how can they do that i mean i'm incredibly interested i would love to be analyzed so how how would i do that awesome yeah so you can go to solston.io to learn more about what we do at at solston i think we're having a newsletter that's launching mid august so that's a great way to just sign up and see things there. And then if you go to wellbeing.solston.io, uh, mm -hmm. there is actually, it's not our adaptive assessment. It's it's a static version of what we do, but it's a, a free psych assessment. We don't track identity or anything like that as a part of it. And you can start to, yeah, you can see like your motivations, bunch of cool stuff there. I had a, a client actually say that this helped her more than her psychologist did through all of COVID. So it's, it's, a, it's a clinically valid assessment that's free. We launched it as a part of COVID. We wanted to say like, how do we help people through this period and what can we do as a company? But yeah, we don't, we don't keep your information. You get a unique ID at the end of it. So you can pull it up at any time or delete it if you want to. And then my final question would be, at what point can I expect the the games I'm playing to gently recommend that I go to therapy? <laughs> yeah, so I think what's, so we have a partnership that's in place with like Charité and one of our customers that's, Charité is like one of the biggest research hospitals in, in Germany. So it's it's moving in that direction. 
I don't think we're ever going to be able to, on the consumer side, sort of say that exactly. But then on the, on the patient side, I think what's more exciting is, and this is like, this is the dream. Like this is the scientific frontier that we're on, but I would love to see a world where you could go into the doctor and they hand you a tablet and it's like play Angry Birds for three minutes. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe we can do that in in five years. Let's see what, how the medical industry okay. goes, but it takes a while to to start working there. But that's that's part of what we're we're working to. Amazing, right? Well, thank you again, and I'm I'm sure we will talk soon. Awesome, well, yeah, really appreciate you guys having me on, and super cool what you guys are are doing as well. 